Good morning. I'm going to read the central text for us this morning. Um, Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 through 13. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned for me, but you have no, no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, to give credence to what Sally said, that I didn't know that video was going to happen this morning, uh, I thought Barbara was going to tell the whole story. So in 07, I drive up here around Memorial Day weekend, and I really want this job. Grace Community Church is looking for a church planner for Hendersville. I really want this job. I had a 30-page, single-spaced business plan with a five-year budget. I meant business. So we're sitting down to have sushi, and my wife has this beautiful white skirt on. And similar to Florida's quarterback to handoff uh, exchanges with the running back that resulted in a fumble that cost us a game last night. I thought I almost did something similar because I went to give it to Catherine, but she just didn't grab it the way you're meant to as a running back, and it ended up all over her skirt within 10 minutes of our little interview. So uh, we're thankful we got the job, but wow, that, I, gosh, wow. Oh, man. So, all right. Well, you didn't cringe as much as I did. I thought you would. Uh, why don't we pray? Uh, Lord, I do uh, know and recognize there's, um, to be content as a believer means we must also wrestle with a needed discontent. Lord, we've, <laughs> we've sort of failed on both. We, we don't, we're not discontent in the areas we should be, and we're not content in the areas we should be. And so I just pray that your spirit would allow the world to fade away for the next 25, 30 minutes and uh, with humility, help us to really grasp what contentment means, why we don't have it, and how we can get it. In your name we pray, amen. If you got the sermon preview, you saw the story. And some of you may be familiar, but on August 15th in 1962, uh, drummer Pete Best, he stepped off the stage of the Liverpool uh, Caravan Club with his bandmates. And when he got off, his manager of the band asked him and said, hey, can we meet tomorrow morning? I need to talk to you. And he didn't really think much of it because the band was doing really well at this time. And, you know, it looked like better things were on the horizon. So he assumed it was something about business. But when he got there in the morning, the manager's just shaking. And you could tell he's really nervous. And he let him know. He didn't see it coming. He let him know he was going to be replaced uh, as the drummer. And worse yet, this man, Pete Best, he literally would never hear again from his bandmates, John, Paul, George. That's right. He was replaced by Ringo Starr with none other than the Beatles. Just days later, the Beatles made their first television appearance, and a month later, they recorded their first album, Love Me Do. 
He tried really, really hard to forge his way in music, but every door just from there on seemed closed. And at one point, a couple years later, he attempted suicide. Thankfully, he was rescued from that. But when that happened, he had to make a decision, didn't he? What do I do with these drumsticks? I need to put them down for a while. And I've got to just lean into the life I have. A couple years later, by the end of the 1960s, the Beatles were larger than Elvis. And Pete Best, you know what he was doing? Loading sliced bread into delivery trucks. He had a job doing that. And he said that. He said, I wasn't at all ashamed. It was good. It was wholesome. It was manual work. I was providing for my family and their security. And that was all that mattered. And later, as the Beatles are dabbling in psychedelic drugs and doing meditative trips in the Himalayas, where would you find Pete Best? Probably hanging out in the pub with his friends after work, playing rugby at the old collegiate league. But still, how do you do this, you know? I mean, you're going to hear the Beatles on the radio, and every now and then somebody would hear the rumor and say, is this true? You were once a Beatle? And this is what he said. He said, some people expect me to be bitter and twisted, but I'm not. I feel very fortunate in my life that God knows what strains and stresses the Beatles must have been under. They became a public commodity, and John paid with that in his life. I'm happier than I would have been with the Beatles. I didn't misread that. I'm happier than I would have been with the Beatles, as incredulous as this story sounds, just getting axed right at the cusp of worldwide success, isn't it more incredulous? I mean, how many of us really believe that? And I don't think he just found happiness. He found the secret, that thing that we're all really looking for, isn't it? It's this thing that's elusive, that's mysterious, it's contentment. And Paul says, I've learned it. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Why is that so hard? I know I struggle with it. Why is this so hard for us? How do we get it? Oh, I forgot to show you the picture. That's him right there. Yeah, amazing. All right, the secret of contentment. Learning contentment and the strength for contentment. The secret of it, learning it. It's something we had to work on. And then lastly, the strength for it. Now, um, so Paul is, we're closing the letter. Next week will be our last week, and we'll look at what I'm about to talk about all exclusively next week. But as the Apostle Paul is closing the letter of the book of Philippians, he's tasked with writing a thank you note, a thank you card. And I don't know about you, but I find writing thank you notes inordinately harder than it should be. Does anybody else know what I'm talking about? My, my, my wife, she can fill up both sides. And then I just take advantage of that, and I'll just write at the end, thanks again, everybody, for everything. Love, Chess. You know? Like, there's just something about writing a thank you note I'm not good at. It feels hard, and I guess it's because I'm not a Southerner. And maybe Paul wasn't either. Because if you look at what Paul wrote, it doesn't, it seems like he's struggling. Let me explain what's going on here. There's a lot of nuance here, more than you realize. But as he's trying to write a thank you note, He's also paying attention to the values of the culture at the time. Now, we've been very critical of the Greco-Roman culture, very indulgent people, very self-centered, a lot of injustices, but they do do some things well, and he's pointing out some of the things that are good in the culture. And one of the things in the Greco-Roman world people really valued was authentic friendship. Like, they had a high value of friendship, and the true virtuous friendship 
is a, is a friendship in which you're there for all the right reasons. You're not there for anything. You're, you're not there for money or gifts or services. You want to prove that, that you love these people for no other reason that you just love them. Well, he has received a financial gift by the church in Philippi. Uh, remember, he's in prison. He wouldn't have survived without that. He wants to say thank you, but he also is trying to wrestle with this tension. How do I say thank you and also convey to you that I'm not here in your friend because of money? And that's what he's doing in verse 9. He's saying, look, all this time I have been pouring out my life for you, not knowing that I was going to get this gift. But a lot of scholars look at the way Paul writes this and they say, you know how Paul says thank you? He says this is about as well as our children do. Thanks. You know, I took my son to the movie the other day and I'm getting in the car. I'm like, gee, thanks, Dad, for taking me to see the Marvels movie that he didn't get the whole time. Thanks, Dad, you know. <laughs> thanks, 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 yeah. It looks like it's thanks as thanks because it looks like Paul is saying, yeah, uh, thanks, but, you know, turns out I really don't have any need. Thanks for the gift, but I don't need anything. Verse 11. What is he saying? Again, he's trying to convey to them that I am grateful. He's rejoicing clearly. But what he's speaking of here, he's trying to convey, it's not your gift and why I'm here, because I found something. I have a secret. And it's an amazing secret. I've learned what it means to be content. Now, one of the challenges, when, when I opened up that story uh, when we began, one of the risks I felt like I was taking was because I, I think the Pete Best story is amazing, but it also conveyed this idea that contentment is this. And how many of us in the room think it is this? Oh, I know what contentment means. It means to be grateful for the life you have and stop focusing on what you don't have. Right? How many of us think, raise your hand, if you think that's what contentment means? Now, I'm saying it starkly, so you know you're giving the wrong answer if you answer. So I know that's why none of your hands are going up, okay? So sorry, I didn't sell that well. But a lot of us think that that's what, you know, contentment means. And I want, let's just stop. If you do that, there's nothing wrong with that. But studies are through the roof on things like this. If you and I took the time when we got a journal, called it our gratitude journal, Literally, do you know it will like remap your brain being grateful? It does. It works. You, if you focus on all the gifts you have and you stop focusing on what you don't have, you'll be happier. You'll have more joy. You'll have more peace. You'll have more contentment. But that's not what Paul is saying. If that's not the only way we arrive at contentment. There was another thing going on culturally, and I'll stop with all that here in a bit. But it's the movement called Stoicism in the day. Stoic philosophers. And Stoicism, and Paul uses a specifically Stoic word when he uses contentment, Stoicism met and believed that I arrive, I want to eliminate all my needs and wants in life. Because our problem in life is we've got too much ambition. In fact, Seneca, a Stoic philosopher living in that time, he said, human beings are all untrustworthy, they're discontented, they're ambitious. And that's our problem. We want too much stuff, Right? And so what we got to do in life is we've got to learn to stop wanting and start relying on ourselves. Don't rely on others. Sort of that sentiment is sort of the idea, and that's, I know some of us have been through things like this, where if you've ever been through multiple breakups in a row, in a row, whatever, what happens to your heart in those moments? What happens? You just start saying to yourself, I am done with relationships. No more. But Paul is not saying that's what contentment is. Because you know what? 
Paul is not saying, I have learned the secret to be unmoved in life. I have learned the secret how to detach. I have learned the secret how to not need anything so I can just rely on myself in life. That's not contentment. That's stoicism. And frankly, that's really close to Buddhism as well. Paul is saying, if you want to learn the secret of contentment, you've got to do something really hard. And C.S. Lewis tells us what it is. To love. And to love it all is to be vulnerable. If you love anything, your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. <laughs> Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or, or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. No. Because love is to be vulnerable. But how do we face all the hardships of life and still remain vulnerable? Paul is inviting us to say that, you know what the truly contented person does? They do not kill their heart. Instead, they feel it. They see the needs. They see the desires. They see the wants in the heart. And all of a sudden, they realize, wow, I have got to find something in this life to really fill it. And we'll get into that in a second. But I really want you to hear me. The truly content person is not a person who arrives at learning how to want less. The truly content person is the person who learns how to want more. Because look, Paul had to learn it. Not all, like half of these are hardships and half of these are good times. He's saying, I've had to learn how to stay vulnerable, how to be content when I had a lot of stuff. And I've also had to do it when I'm really hungry. I've learned the secret of how to face either circumstance without losing my heart. Because here's what happens when we are in seasons of plenty and when good things happen to us, you know there's that gnawing feeling underneath. It's like whispering to us. It's wrestling with us. It's saying, pay attention to me. And as you're in these moments and you had so much hope set on it, what's always happening? We're always saying, this still is not enough. What is that? And then when we have these moments of hunger, and I had to prepare for colonoscopy this week, so I felt hunger quite a bit this week. All right, and that was TMI, but you should get one. You need to. Um, when we're hungry, it's shouting at you. I mean, I was thinking about going to Sonic. I haven't been there in 30 years, probably. I mean, it just it screams at you. But see, when there's hunger, <laughs> when there's hunger, it's saying there is something that in this world we're looking for that it cannot satisfy. What is contentment? Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, the Christian is the most contented man in the world, but he is the least contented with the world. He is like a traveler in an inn, perfectly satisfied with the inn and its accommodation, considering it as an inn, but putting quite out of all consideration the idea of making it his home. What's the secret? Paul was in prison. That's one of the hallmarks of the book of Philippians. And you know what he did? He didn't, like Shawshank, he didn't become institutionalized. He didn't stop hoping. He didn't stop feeling. He didn't kill and slaughter needs and wants and desires. He did not turn off his heart. But in, those, in that prison, you know what he did? He learned how to fan the flames inside that heart. He learned how to stoke that heart, to lean into his hunger, and to say there's something about this hunger and this needs and these wants that must be pointing to something I need, and it's a secret. And one of the reasons he uses the word secret 
One of the main reasons is because he's referencing the fact that there were all these temple gods and all these secret insiders and all that. What Paul is saying the secret is, is as a Christian, you know the ultimate insider of the universe. We as believers are united to the ultimate insider, Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead. And we are united to him but we must learn how to practice and experience the benefits of our union. And we're going to look at that in point two. But for now, do you understand? Are you discontent? Ask the question. Are you feeling discontent? This week I was with a man. It was a beautiful story. I felt like I needed to kick my shoes off and recognize I was in holy ground because this man has walked through addiction, the muddy, disgusting waters of it, the hardships, and he crawled through clean on the other side. And as I was sitting there, he was talking about his brain and how the fact is that even though he's sober and clean and has been for a while and believes there's been victory, there's still the addict inside him, the ravenous addict. And he can't get rid of that addict. That addict will be there the rest of his life. He has so rewired his brain. But we had this point where we were talking through and I said, wow, what a tragedy it would be if that addict died, wouldn't it? Because see, you know what this, does, this man does with his addict? He takes that addict, that ravenous hunger, to Jesus like crazy. And he goes, and he keeps coming to Jesus, and he keeps fighting. He keeps bringing this part of himself to Jesus Christ and finding it satisfying. We're no different. All of us have a ravenous hunger, these potent desires and needs inside of us. What do we do? Let's talk a little more practically here. How do we do this? I mean, I'm by no means preaching from Mount Sinai this morning. I'm, I'm with you in this. Well, let me tell you a story real quick. In 1871, there was a terrible fire uh, in downtown Chicago. Some of you may be familiar with this. And a local attorney, his name was Horatio Spafford. He owned a lot of property that had been destroyed in that fire. So he essentially was ruined financially. And then two years later, in 1873, there was another economic downturn. So back to back to back, just really losing a lot of different things. But he was a Christian, and he was connected to D.L. Moody, and Moody was getting ready to do some evangelistic work overseas in England, and he meant to join him, but because of the downturn, he had to stay uh, on business. So he sent his family ahead of him, his wife Anna, and four daughters. And if you're tracking or a little bit familiar with this story or the song that came from it that we sang a little bit earlier, on the way to England, there was a shipwreck. And he got the famous now uh, telegram from his wife that said, saved alone. Saved alone. So he went to go meet his wife, and he had to take the same route on a ship. And as he's crossing the area where his four daughters died, and he's seeing the ocean <laughs> and all this turmoil, knowing that this took my daughters from me, he wrote this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. There's a reason it says sea billows because, you know, when he was weeping and he was distraught and he just that piercing grief, he's watching the ocean move and sway and waves and the winds and all that. And yet in the middle of all that, there is a peace. He felt this deep contentment. I love this story, but that story scares the heck out of me. 
It frightens me. Because I don't want that to ever happen to me or to anybody here. It is the worst case scenario that we are all fearful of. But do you know what the Apostle Paul is trying to tell us and help us? There's something that happens when tragedy comes in our life. And some of you have been there and you come to this conclusion where you say to yourself, I didn't know Jesus was all I need until I found out he's all I had. But verse 12 is an invitation to say we don't have to wait till the bottom falls out in our lives. We can begin to do some of that work because Paul had been shipwrecked. But he also abounded. He wanted. He, he had desires. He had plenty at times. He was brought low. So how, how did he learn to apply Jesus and the union we have with him in every circumstance? Let me just try. I think I'm just going to give us four things. And somebody last week said they wanted a list. So I'm giving them a list. She's not looking at me right now. But here's a list, okay? I have a list for Danielle McCall, okay? <laughs> Danielle McCall. I'll even give you my notes so you can look right up right now. I know you're crawling under a rock, but here's your stinking list, okay? You want your list? Here you go. Okay. That was not in my manuscript, just so you know. I wasn't planning to do that. I think there is something liberating to recognize that what happened to Horatio Spafford is going to happen to you. At your death and my death, we lose everything. Everything we love, everything we hold dear, we leave the world the way we entered, naked. And there's a person in this room, I want to tell you right now, somebody in this building, out of 250 people that are here or whatever, one of you, is probably in the toddler, so, is going to outlive every single one of us. Think about that. One person here will do that. And you know what that person needs to learn how to say in order to prepare for that? Goodbye. Goodbye. We would much rather never pay attention to that fact that it's standing right behind me and stuff that down. But it, we must, because if we're going to learn contentment, then we must learn, we must find our contentment in something that we can never lose. So, what else the next? I think that means if we hold on to that, then you know what we can do in life? We can accept the good and the bad and the wonderful and the ugly as they are with gratitude. Paul is saying, I found my joy, I found my peace, I found my hope, my surest foundation, my contentment. Because what happened? He learned in every circumstance to put circumstances in their proper order. When we have our circumstances in the proper order, we're not looking to it for our contentment, then we can be set free from trying to grab hold. You know what I'm talking about? Just grabbing hold of it. But we also can be set free from believing the lie that our life is meant to just detach and numb ourselves. We can receive gifts with joy and, and we can be grateful. We can enjoy great moments, but then when there's things that are worthy of tears, we can weep, we can grieve, we can feel hunger. He faced both because he was satisfied in the thing that can't be taken. The whole book of Philippians is about knowing Christ. Over page, the joy of knowing Christ. And if that is our contentment, then that, you know what it means? It means we need to learn how to celebrate better. We should learn what it means to kick back the tables and throw a party with our friends and celebrate moments we need to celebrate. 
and slaughter that fattened calf and invite people into that. Because we know these moments aren't ultimate. We don't have to grab hold of them, but we can enjoy them for what they are. And we know that when there's sorrow, we can weep our tears that we need to do it. But how do we do that? I think we need to remember economics class. <laughs> yeah, economics. Do you, I will never forget, I was in an economics lecture. I was a business major. A couple of my fraternity brothers in the same lecture with me. And we, but none of us had class of that, so we went to lunch at the fraternity house. And I remember this guy saying, oh, I know what diminishing marginal utility means. Every bite I eat of this lunch gets worse and worse <laughs> than the first. <laughs> diminishing returns, whatever you want to call it. There is something that it, look, everything has diminishing returns. Years ago, I was watching 60 Minutes, and Tom Brady was interviewed, and he spoke this out. Everything's going well in his life, Super Bowls, all these different things. And you know what he just, he looked at, I can't remember who the interviewer was, but he said, you know what, it's just not enough. There's not enough. Why are so many celebrities addicted and musicians addicted? Why are we at this point where this week alone, on Thursday, we are going to pause, we are going to give thanks, we're going to be grateful, and then a day later is filled with unbridled avarice. <laughs> People die at Best Buy's on Black Friday because everything has diminishing returns and we keep looking over and over and over again for our satisfaction. If you know this, that means that we can grieve the things we needed to do without being devastated and we can celebrate the things we need to be. Because everything in life, the reason why has a diminishing utility and diminishing returns because everything is swelling to a crescendo. All these needs, all these desires were really meant for this one moment in life that your life as a believer is building for, and it's when you lock eyes with Jesus Christ. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. So again, I'll repeat myself. Our desires are too small. Our desires are too soul. Some of you have a longing to be married, and it hurts. And you have been praying, and it's a mystery. It doesn't make sense. And it's hard. And it's been there for a long time. And I would bet a lot of money that you have had people scold you for those desires at some point. That somebody has said, oh, you know, it's, stop wanting that. Stop wanting. Can I just say, pay attention to that. Do you know why you want that? Because you want intimacy. You want somebody to give you a commitment that's not going to leave you, that's going to stay with you and committed to you. And that desire is a good thing. But even now, I want you to know that desire even points to a greater desire, which is the true husband, Jesus Christ, and a marriage of heaven and earth. Some of us here have struggled our whole lives. We've looked for praise in others and good feedback and all these different things, and we've unhealthily been codependent on work and relationships. Why? Why? Because ultimately, we were longing for someone to say, good job, my son. Well done, good and faithful servant. Our desires are too small because they were made for an eternal, as we saw last week, infinite abyss that can only be found in Christ. So how do we do it? Let's close here and preach the gospel, the strength for contentment. How do we do this? Well, where does the strength come from? Probably the most uncontextualized verse in the entire Bible. 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. How many of us have seen that on the eye black of football? And, you know, it's, it's typically associated with victorious Christian living. I can lift these weights for Jesus. I mean, and it's, there's nothing wrong with that, okay? And I'm not trying to be snarky, but Paul's not talking about defying human limitations or defying human weakness. He's been weak. He's talking about the strength to be content. That's what this verse means. Don't, you don't have to be rude to the person who takes that out of context. You know, do you know what this really means? I mean, just, you know, let it go. But Paul, I heard it at church. Now I know. Um, he's saying this because you know what? Being content is hard. Not many of us are here. So how do we do it? If you look at the life of Jesus Christ, do we see contentment? Yes. Look at Christ, and he seems to be radically satisfied with his father, isn't he? He's constantly going away and praying. He's, we saw last week, he's in a boat that's about to be sunk, and he's at peace. He's entering into life. Jesus is able to face every circumstance. Jesus goes to weddings and has wine even helps contribute to it. So he knew how to celebrate. He knew how to do good things in good times. But Jesus also knew how to deal with tragic things and perform miracles to, to stop that. But as you look at Jesus' final breath on earth, if it does become clear that there was one thing that he was not content with, something was not complete, something was not yet satisfied Jesus Christ left heaven and came to this world. He suffered and died. And Jesus' final words on earth were what? It is finished. It is finished. Because he came to satisfy the wrath for sin, to destroy death and to make us whole. Jesus was not content to leave us or this world the way it is. Jesus loves you. He loves you as you are, but you must know something about the gospel. Jesus Christ will never leave you as you are because he has his desires for what you will be for eternity are far greater than the vision you have for yourself. He will not leave us as we are. Early in the book, we were told this stunning promise that Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You have so many desires, so many longings. These things are there because he's doing it. He will take us there. He is not content to leave us as we are because one day we will be just like him. Every season of our lives, plenty or what, when we are brought low, when we are abounding, when we're in abundance or need, everything is pointing to a longing and a desire for our great Savior to make everything whole, satisfied. And to have all of him given to us to satisfy our greatest longings. Jesus has given all of himself to us, friends, to satisfy everything our desires point to and through all the many desires that we have, that we navigate. Lord, we, we do pray that we wouldn't be like the Stoics or Buddhists, but that we would see the Lord that all these desires and needs and wants aren't, that they're pointing 
not to make us self-sufficient, but to make us reliant on you. Our hearts truly are just simply restless until they find their heart heart, rest in you. We know that intellectually, but Lord, practically, I do pray that whatever season we are in right now, that we could hold those things and bring them to you and know that truly you're the only thing that is meant to satisfy the deepest longings in our hearts. And you're the only thing that can't be taken away from us. So we lift that to you. We pray for a deep season in our lives of contentment and joy. And it is in your name we pray. Amen.